0: This morning is 2 Samuel, chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah the Hittite to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how, how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house <coughs> and wash your feet. And Uriah went, <coughs> went out of the king's house and there, followed, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of the Lord and Judah dwell in Booth, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go down to my house and eat and to drink? And to lie with my wife? As you live, as your serv- as your, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they will shoot from the wall? Who, ki- who, who killed Abimelech, the son of and did not, did not a woman cast an upper millstone? on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes. Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Then the wife of Uriah heard about Uriah, that her husband was dead. She lamented over her husband, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for bringing us here, for calling us to be your people. Thank you that we can come and worship together with you. We pray that you would be glorified in this, in this service here. We pray that you would be glorified and proclaimed through uh, the words Mark shares from your word. In your name, amen.
1: Well, good morning. So we are continuing, finally get to David and Bathsheba. Long chapter, probably a very famous story from David's life. Uh, Before we get into that, just a uh, a quick... um, uh, how do you say, it? administrative word, um, uh, I am going to be gone this week. I'll be at a pastor's conference down in St. Paul from Monday through Wednesday, and then we leave as a family on Friday through Sunday to go to Brainerd, the pastor appreciation trip that you guys uh, gave us last October. So, um, so if you have things going on, if you have uh, an emergency or whatever, you can contact Josh uh, or Albert. And their numbers and stuff are in the bulletin, so go ahead and do that if you don't have their numbers. Um, uh, but otherwise, I, you won't be able to get a hold of me. So, um, sorry, don't get mad at me if I don't respond back to it. Um, when we go down Brainerd, I'll basically be shutting everything off so that we can focus as a, as a family together and spend a, a good time together. So, that being said, next week we have a special guest, Alan which Albert's really excited about because he would be half the one who would have to preach if Alan wasn't willing to preach. Uh, but pray for, for Alan as he prepares this week um, and, uh, and uh, pray that it's, uh, it's a good service for you guys to worship God together and as he brings the word to him. So uh, we'll be praying for you too while we were going to church elsewhere um, next Sunday. Anyway, all right, so throughout First and Second Samuel, We have talked over and over again about how, um, and we've emphasized that we are not David, right? David is David. We are not David. We can't put ourselves in his place. Uh, But we have also mentioned that he's a good example. This is one of those passages. Um, He's the anointed king. We are not. But in the passage today, he fails... At being the example of Christ in Second Samuel eleven, with Bathsheba. Now, don't hear this wrong. He is the anti-Christ, not the antichrist like the end antichrist. That's not what we're talking. He's the opposite of what Christ is. Usually, his life is. Look at the faithfulness of David. You need to keep an eye out for the anointed king, the true anointed king. Who will be better than David? Well, here, David utterly fails at being the type of Christ. He's the anti-type of Christ, if you want to use that words. Um, but he is still pointing us to the true Messiah, just in a negative way, in the negative side of things. Where David fails, Christ succeeds. And so for my prayer this, uh, for us this morning is that we feel the weightiness of David's sin, that we feel the weightiness of our own sin. There's a repentance and a redemption for David in the next chapter, chapter 12. But none of that is known yet in chapter 11. We're gonna sit in the deep pain and heaviness of sin today. We're not gonna move too quickly to redemption It's on the horizon. It's there. But we're going to sit in the sin. We're going to be shown by David that sin is evil in the sight of the Lord. And as God's people, this truth always needs to be on our minds and on our hearts. See, David is a warning to all of us of the slippery slope of sin. Now, I created that title And then I realized I just did what I hate. They're all S's. It just happened to work out that way. And you could talk to Aaron. I was like really ashamed when we talked about it, right? Because that's my own personality. And you're like, you're just weird, Mark. Yes, I know. But he is a warning of that slippery slope. And I see seven slips. See, look, there's S's everywhere, aren't there? There's seven slips. And you use that word slips by David that led him down a path of destruction. Now when I say that word, slipped, I don't want you to think like David's actions were accidental. Like you slip on, a pe- on ice, right? You, know, you don't expect it. It's not there. And so you slip. Well, no, instead I mean that David knowingly and willingly allowed himself to slip. And it's the same with us today. As believers in Christ, we know full well that what we are doing When we slip on sin, the only surprise is how quickly we find ourselves at the bottom of the slope. And like David, the end of our sin leads to severe consequences. I mentioned this, I think, last week, maybe even two weeks ago. This incident with Bathsheba is, in a sense, the beginning of the end of David's kingship. He remains king until the day he dies but it is filled with pain and suffering and consequences. So, okay, slip number one. David stays in Jerusalem. The Ammonites, remember that from last week? They're battling against Israel again. They get defeated, but they don't learn their lesson. Well, they're still fighting. They're continuing to, uh, to fight against Israel, and in the spring, the campaign against them continues. David rallies the army, and sends them out. But instead of going with them, like he did in the previous chapter, he stays in Jerusalem. He stays in his palace. We're not told why, but the emphasis is placed upon his remaining home when he should have gone to battle with the men. In the spring, when kings normally go out to battle, David stayed put. This one decision, This one choice of David was the beginning of a very steep and disastrous slope of sin. Because he had been, if he had been fighting, if he had gone out with the army, he never would have found himself on the roof of his home. And so it is with us today. It only takes one decision, one piece of gossip entertained, one pornographic picture seen, one video or movie watched, One incident of procrastination and one pen stolen from the office when nobody knows. One seemingly innocent act like sitting on your couch on the roof, like staying back when all the army is out. One seemingly innocent act leads down to a destructive path if it's not stopped in that moment. And in David's case, staying home from the battle leads to a moment of lingering. Now, you think David's king. He's a busy man. He's exhausted. Doesn't he deserve a break? I mean, how long has he been king? 10, 15, 20 years? How many battles has he fought? How long was he running for his life from Saul? How long did he fight a civil war? Doesn't he deserve a little bit of rest from battle? And so he finds himself on his couch on the roof of his palace, something which is in stark contrast to his men who were fighting on the battlefield. But rising from his couch to stretch his legs, his eyes fall upon a beautiful woman taking a bath on her roof. Now, whatever the bath entailed, we're not told We're not told the details. Whatever Bathsheba was doing, David's eyes lingered. David's eyes lingered on her, enticing him to take just one more step down that slippery slope. He's told that her name is Bathsheba and that she's the wife of one of his mighty men, Uriah, who currently is fighting against the Amorites. He seizes the opportunity to indulge in lustful desires more deeply by bringing her to him, and then he lays with her. And when that act is done, she returns to her home, only to find out a short time later that she's pregnant, and she's pregnant with David's child. Now, at the time that he saw her, it says that She was purifying herself from uncleanness, meaning that she had just finished her monthly menstrual cycle. Parents, you're welcome. And they were told that for a reason. We're told that because there is now no doubt who the father of the child is, it's David's, because her husband is gone. And so this news drives David to slip once more down the slope, and he has to cover up his actions. And isn't it the same with us? When the opportunity to sin raises its head, do we linger and look into his eyes, into its eyes? No one's gonna know. Nothing bad's gonna happen. Just take a small taste of whatever that is. What harm can it be? But as the desire to sin grows, we welcome it with open arms. And when the chance that our sin will be exposed appears, we work with all of our might to cover up our actions. As many children have learned, one lie leads to another lie, which leads to another lie, compounding the sin, increasing the speed in which we slide down that slope. And in David's case, covering up the sin means deceiving Uriah. That's the third slip, David deceives. David knows that Bathsheba's pregnant, uh, that her pregnancy is going to expose him. He knows that Uriah is going to figure things out. He's not a dumb man. Something happened. And so David calls Uriah back from the front, telling him to go home, wash his feet, spend time with his wife. We all know what that means. But Uriah's character outshines David's. He has no idea of David's deception, but he still refuses to go home to his wife. This is what he says in verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That is lean-to's. They're living in the desert and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, he makes an oath, he swears to David, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And these words should have cut to David's heart. Uriah points out that his fellow soldiers and even God himself in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant are living in shacks. It wouldn't be right for him to bask in the arms of his wife while they are enduring hardships of battle and siege. Now there are moments in the midst of our own sin which should cause us to stop short, that should cause us to correct our course, And perhaps it's a close call in getting caught. Perhaps it's the unexpected words of a fellow believer who has absolutely no idea what you're struggling with or what your deception is or what your sin is, and yet they speak words which call us to repentance. That's what Uriah's words do here. They tell David, repent, even though Uriah has no clue. Will we recognize and will we take those moments heart? Will we see them as God's way of providing a way off of that slippery slope? Well, in this case, David didn't. Instead of taking Uriah's words to heart, David slips once more. If he can't entice Uriah to lay with Bathsheba, then maybe he can manipulate him into doing it. And that's slip number four. And so David invites Uriah to a meal feeding him well, giving him lots of alcohol to get him drunk. His hope was to dim Uriah's wits, manipulating him to go home to his wife, but it doesn't work. Uriah's character is too high. He still is unwilling to place himself above his fellow soldiers or above the the Lord. And now David's in a hard place. And so he takes One more slip on that slope. In his mind, his only option then, is to get rid of Uriah. At this point, some of us might be saying, well, it's a really big leap to move from deceit manipulation to murder. And I would say, but is it? We're going to get there. Minimization of sin, It's really not that big of a deal. It'll never go that direction. But because of our sinful nature, we all have the capability of allowing sin to fester, grow, and overtake our lives if it was not for the grace of God. Is it that big of a leap to move from pornography to hiring a prostitute? Not as big as we think. Is it that big of a leap from hearing gossip to completely cutting, off, completely cutting off your relationship with the one that was gossiped about? Well, that one hits a little bit closer to home. How many times have that happened to us? We've lost friendships because of lies that were told or we break off friendships because of gossip. Is it that big of a leap to move from desiring to fulfill your sinful behavior to desiring and demanding your sinful ha- behavior being welcomed and accepted by others under pain of disownment. That's a lot of words. If you do not like what I do, then I will have nothing to do with you. My argument, and I would say that David's behavior with Bathsheba supports this, is that the slippery slope of sin moves much faster and farther than we expect. We all could easily act with deception, manipulation, and anger, which interestingly enough, Christ says, is the same as murder. Ah, well now, how often does a word said by someone lead to our anger and our hearts against our brother or sister? which is the same as murder. Oh, well now we're in David's camp. Now we're in David's camp. How easily do we fall in that direction if it were not for the grace of God? But this is where David finds himself. And he's about to take the step of murder to hide his own sin. Uriah is sent back by David to the battle carrying his own death sentence and he has no idea. David commands Joab to place Uriah at the most dangerous part of the fight and that way his death will look like just a natural part of the battle. And Joab follows his king's order and let's just say it like it is, Uriah is murdered. He's not killed in battle, he's murdered. When Joab sends an update to the battle, on the battle to David, he makes sure that the, he, he does, it says something weird about Abimelech. When David says this, and he's all upset, why did you allow these people, why did you get so close to the city? Joab throws these, this word in, and when he talks about Abimelech, who is this Abimelech, and how this woman threw something on him? Well, in Judges chapter 9, Abimelech and his forces come up against a strong tower into which the people from that city had fled. But as Abimelech was fighting, a woman threw a heavy millstone from the tower, crushing Abimelech's skull. And he knew he was about to die, Abimelech. And he begged his armor bearer to kill him because he didn't want others to say a woman killed him. In other words, To be killed by a woman was shameful to him. And so going back to Joab, and let's say these are the words of David, it is a shame. It is a shame that you got so close to the wall. You should know better, Joab. (laughs) And it's interesting that uh, Joab throws these words in in there. um, Say, when he says that, and, well... The explanation is this, why why this story of Abimelech. Remember what I said, when you're reading a passage, you see something really weird there? This is where the notes, if you have a study Bible, are really helpful. Abimelech was the son of Jerobashef, also known as Gideon, which means, may shame judge. This is a not so subtle hint from David to himself, interestingly enough. Because if David says this, it is a shame that you did this, Joab. Why would you do this? He's speaking his, his own judgment upon himself. Which is why then, Joab says, if this is what David says, then you just tell him your eye is dead. And then see what he says. Somebody speaks the truth to David that could help him step off of that slippery slope. He's just murdered Uriah. Joab is basically saying, you're condemning yourself, David, when you say that it is shameful to do what happened. But David doesn't listen. David slips again, and he minimizes his sin. He has a sense that Joab isn't happy about killing Uriah, which makes sense, right? Like, he at least has the brain capacity in that moment to go, I could tell Joab's upset. Like, if you're, if you're married, you ever get that sense, you walk through the door and you go, I did something wrong, and I have absolutely no idea. Like there's just this innate sense. That's where Joab, where David's at, like, yeah, I could tell Joab, you're not very happy about this." And we see this in David's response in verse 25. He says, "Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours one, now one and now another." Or, as the new King James Version re- note reads, more literally. Do not let this matter be evil in your sight. Don't let Uriah's death bother you. Don't, let, don't see it as an evil thing. Soldiers die all the time in battle, don't they? Just finish the battle, overthrow the city, and come home and we'll revel in your glory. David once again had slipped you would think murder would be the lowest, but nope, he goes further. He easily dismissed the severity of his sin. He had taken the life of one of his soldiers so that his sin of adultery would never be known. To David, Uriah's murder was nothing more than a casualty of war. And to increase his unwillingness to see the reality of his sin, he's rewarded for it. Now, David, he's going down this slope at an enormous speed. But instead of hitting the bottom of the hill, he receives a reward. Now, he's going to hit the bottom in, in chapter 12, not until Nathan speaks to him. His sin is covered up. This, this is how he's reward, rewarded. His sin is covered up. Bathsheba becomes his wife, so he... He gains a beautiful wife, and a son is born to him. Like, man, he murdered a man, and he's rewarded for it. And at this point, life is good. David has literally gotten away with murder. Sin, let's be honest, sin can reward us with pleasure or power, influence, money, satisfaction, relief, and so many more. There's always some sort of payoff for sin, at least temporarily or in the short term. And it's that short reward which tends to entice us to come back to that same sin over and over again, hoping for a bigger payout. But the reward never lasts. Especially as God's people, as a son or a daughter of God, we sin and we know we're doing wrong, And there's that short pleasure, that short reward, or whatever it may be. And then there's the guilt, which is a good thing. (laughs) Why did I do what I did? I shouldn't have said that thing. I shouldn't have done that thing. I shouldn't have thought that thing. Father, forgive me. Guilt is not a bad thing. But there's always a price to be paid. And the last sentence in this chapter foreshadows David's cost. It foreshadows the consequences of his sin. And it's very simple. It's a very simple phrase. Doesn't go into great explanation. This is what it says. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I love the ESV, I love the NIV but man, that minimizes it. And that really bothers me. Because this is the same word, that word displeased is the same word used by David in his response to Joab, or what Joab says David is going to say. Don't let this matter displease you. It's said against the Lord's displeasure. For David, his slippery slope of sin was nothing to, to trouble about. There was nothing evil in it, But the severity and the weight of a sin is not determined by David. The severity and the weight of sin is not determined by you. It is not determined by me. It's not determined by the church constitution. It's determined by God. And at its very root, sin is rebellion against our holy God. That's why I want us to sit in this for a while. What we see as a little white lie is actually an offense which holds the death penalty. Did we realize that? Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. So what brings death? Sin. It doesn't say for the wages of really bad sin is death. It says sin a small piece of gossip or the brutal murder of another human being, the sentence is eternal death. That kind of brings things home, doesn't it? As Christians, we look back on our life yesterday or maybe this morning and we realize we've sinned against the Lord. Do we realize that sin brings death. Now, before we get all, well, you know, legalistic, all sinful rebellion against him is evil in the sight of the Lord. To put it softly, it displeases him. He sees it as evil. So that little white lie is as evil to the Lord As a mass murderer. In the sight of God, there is no difference because it is all rebellion against Him. God hates sin, He hates it. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Now, listen to these carefully. These are the things that God hates. Haughty eyes looking where you're not supposed to. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans like hiding your sin. Feet that make haste to run to evil a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, before we start to say, well, thank goodness that's not me, those are general enough, I think it covers every one of us. It covers every one of us. And interestingly enough, it's like describing David in, ba- in, his, in his incident with Bathsheba to a T he did all of those things. Now, David forgot this truth. He thought he had gotten away with the perfect sin. He thought no one would hold him accountable for his sin. He thought he had ridden the slippery slope and survived without a scratch. But he was wrong. God had seen what David had done, and it was evil in his eyes. We need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to feel the greatness of the offense against the holy and righteous God. Now, I've, I've heard um, speakers who've had conversations with people and talking about sin this way, and they say, Bel- unbelievers, people who hate God, they know that they're sinners. And I would say, no, they do not. They don't know the great offense that a little white lie has against a holy and righteous God. They may know it's bad. Yeah, that wasn't right. But would they, see, would they say, I am evil? I do not believe they would. In fact, how many times do we as believers who know the truth say, I'm not evil. That's, it's not an evil sin. It's just a mistake. It's a bad choice. No, it was evil in the sight of the Lord. We need to feel the greatness of the offense against the holy and righteous God. I need to see this horrific incident in David's life as my own. How often I find myself on that slippery slope How often I linger and deceive and manipulate. How often the Lord speaks in my life through people who may have absolutely no idea that they're speaking to me. Telling me to get off of that slope and yet I ignore them. How often I minimize my sin to ease my burdened conscience. How often I think I fooled everyone but nobody can fool God. Sometimes we need to sit in the stew. Does that make sense? We need to sit in the stew. Sometimes we need to feel the weight of our sin upon our hearts, and I hope, I hope we feel that this morning. And then the natural question is this. You are such a downer. Where in the world is the hope, Mark? Where is the hope? You're, making me look at my own sin? You're calling it evil? You're calling me evil? Where's the hope? Well, praise God, it's in the next chapter. We're not going to go there yet. Because I feel and I sense that there's no conclusion at the end of this chapter. Did you see that? There's no resolution. This is like the, 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 the psalm that we went through last, last summer, the lament. Where it just sat there and there was no God, I'm burdened. God, bad things are happening to me. And then there's silence. There's no conclusion, there's no resolution. That's what this chapter is. David thinks he's off scot free, but God saw. And it's building that anticipation of okay, God saw. How is God going to react to this now? There is redemption. There is repentance for David in the next chapter. That's where the hope lies. And so that's what I say. Don't be legalistic about this. If you're a believer, this should not suddenly make you question your faith. What it should do is it should say, So go I, but thanks for the grace of the Lord just because I am now a child of God and my sins are forgiven and I've repented of my sin and He's redeemed me does not mean that my sin is not an offense to the Lord. He just doesn't hold it against us. That's where that hope is. Our hope is not found in us. Our hope is found in Him. Our hope is found in what He did through His Son. Our hope is found at that table that we're about to take here. See, Christ died to pay for my sins against God. He bore my sins. He took the punishment of the Father's wrath for my sinful rebellion against Him. He took that upon Himself. He willingly paid the price of death for my sin. I put Him there. You put Christ on the cross. Feel the weight of that. And then feel the great love that He had for us by willingly bearing that sin to save us. Because without Him, we have no hope. In Christ is our hope. In Christ is forgiveness. In Christ, the true, perfect, and sinless anointed King of the Lord There is redemption. And so as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, remember, remember this. Where David failed, where you and I fail, Christ succeeded. Christ did what we could not. And in doing so, He saved us from death, from eternal death. So as we take the cup together, as we grab each of the elements and we come back sitting in our seats and we wait to take it together as a family of God, as we sit there and we reflect and obey the command of Christ to remember, remember what I've done for you. Remember I don't hold your sins against you because I've already paid for your sins. Remember the weightiness that I put him there. I put him there. And he loved me so much, he willingly did it to save me. So when you are ready, make a line, grab each of the elements, come sit down, we'll take communion together. And we will remember Christ's sacrifice for us. His sacrifice which gave us eternal life if we believe and in faith trust Him. So come when you are ready.